0: Welcome to the Aerospace Engineering Podcast. My name is Rainer Groh, Research Fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering, and on this podcast I have conversations with aerospace pioneers about new technologies at the cutting edge of aerospace design and research. We'll start our episode in a moment, but first a word from our sponsor, the Society for the Advancement of Material and Process Engineering. If you're an engineering business that could benefit from new materials and manufacturing processes then Sampi might be the ideal partner for you. Sampi is the only technical society that provides enhanced educational opportunities, knowledge transfer, and professional engagement in all fields of materials and processes. To find out how Sampi can provide your business with growth and educational opportunities, visit Sampi's website at nasampi.org, or consider attending one of Sampi's conferences, such as CAMEX, the largest and most comprehensive composites and advanced materials events for products, solutions, networking, and advanced industry thinking. This episode is also sponsored by StressEbook.com, which is an online hub for you if you're interested in aerospace stress engineering. StressEbook.com provides world-class engineering services and online courses on the stress analysis of aircraft structures, as well as a free ebook and blog no matter if you're a junior or senior structural analyst stressebook.com provides you with the skills and know-how to become a champion in your workplace we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not
1: because they are easy but because they are hard 3 2 1 0 all engine running lift off we have a lift off 32 minutes past the hour lift off on apollo 11 Swifton uh, Tanguality Base here. The Eagle has
0: landed. On this episode of the Aerospace Engineering Podcast, I'm speaking to Wenbin Yu, who is a professor at the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics of Purdue University. Wenbin has achieved many accolades in both the academic world and in the private sector, and is a fellow of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. His specialty lies in multiscale modeling of materials and structures, a topic we delve into throughout this episode. Material scientists are increasingly inventing materials that are designed from the ground up, meaning they take some fundamental building block and then attempt to arrange this building block in an architected manner over multiple length scales. For example, carbon fiber reinforced plastics feature fiber bundles held together by plastic on the microscale which are then aggregated into individual layers on an intermediate mesoscale, and these layers are then assembled into a laminate of many layers at the macroscale. The challenge with these multiscale architected materials is that the global macroscale behavior is influenced by what happens at the microscale. And equally, macroscale deformations can cause damage at the microscale. This means that modern computational models that are used to design aircraft need to account for what happens at the different length scales and also how the different length scales interact. Traditionally, this is done by constructing different models at the different length scales. In the example of the carbon fiber composite, we could construct individual models for an entire laminate, a single layer, and then a single fiber coated by plastic. The problem with these approaches is that they are computationally inefficient, and it's not always obvious where each of the length scales begins and ends. This is where Wenbin's work comes in. He has developed the structure genome which allows engineers to compute mathematically where each length scale begins and to then aggregate information of the smaller length scales into models at the greater length scales. This approach allows engineers to work with models at the global size of the component, say an aircraft wing, while also accounting for the emergent properties of individual stringers, ribs and spars, and further, individual composite layers. This episode is more of a theoretical journey into some of the nuts and bolts of modern engineering analysis. It's the first time that I've run an episode like this, and it's very much an experiment. So if you'd like to hear more content like this, then email me at contact at airspaceengineeringblog.com. But now without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Professor Wenbin Yu. So I'm here with Wenbin Yu. Wenbin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me here, Renil.
0: So Wenbin, before we start talking about structural mechanics and how aircraft are designed, could you tell our listeners who you are and perhaps also how you got into the field of engineering mechanics and the aerospace industry?
1: Oh, yes. And I'm currently a professor in the School of Aeronautics and Astronautics uh, at Purdue University. And uh, I'm also serving as the chief technology officer for a small company called Anderswift, and uh, also serving as the director for composite manufacturing design, uh, design and manufacturing hub. And that is a cloud platform for the composite community to come together to use simulation to improve the design and manufacturing. And uh, regarding how do I get interested in engineering mechanics It's some kind of like strange, you know, my, my bachelor degree was in hydraulic engineering, mainly dealing with water and uh, some, some hydraulic structures. So the most uh, topics or classes I was interested in was uh, mechanics, materials, theoretical mechanics, this type of classes. So later when I decided to go to graduate school, then I choose the engineering mechanics major, then I end up in this major forever
0: now. All right, very interesting. So you were originally a hydraulic hydraulics engineer. That's very interesting. Um, okay, so today we're going to be speaking about uh, your research um, and uh, structural mechanics and engineering design. And of course, um, you mentioned that you're the chief technology officer for a company called Anali Swift, which, full disclosure, has also been a sponsor of previous episodes of this podcast. So um, I think it would be great to have a conversation about, you know, some of the new models that you're developing to be able to analyze uh Airplanes and other types of airspace structures, but um, to begin, let's let's start with some of the some of the basics. Could you describe what uh, traditional traditionally speaking we mean by a material and what we mean by a structure?
1: Oh, really? Uh, that's a very good question, and uh, actually, it's not uh, easy to differentiate what we call the material and a structure for two reasons. First, that uh, these two terms often appear together and are used interchangeably. For example, that all our aerospace structure engineers have studied a subject called the strengths of materials or mechanics of materials. However, that caused many covers, deformation, stress analysis of various structural components like rods, columns, beams, and shafts. And second, with the current increasing capabilities of fabricating advanced materials with complex microstructures, such as woven composites, metamaterials, 3D printing materials. Now you find out uh, a structure is made of material, but a material also internally has a structure. So it's even more difficult to differentiate between a structure and material. Although it's uh, uh, not easy, but we still need to define the terms so that uh, we could uh, avoid the possible confusion. And because I have seen several examples that researchers confused these two terms and claimed they found some very unusual material behavior, which are actually well known structure behavior. So I suggest there are three potential differentiators between uh, structure and uh, material. And uh, a structure usually we have a defined geometry along all the dimensions. For example, we will de- describe a plate usually have certain width, length, and thickness. However, when you're talking about the material made used to make that material, make that structure, uh, we there is no boundaries. It can be considered as a point or as a region of any size. It's not necessary to describe the material that way. And the second uh, differentiator between a um, material and structure is that materials usually described in terms of material properties such as Young's modulus, Poisson's ratio, and the coefficients of thermal expansion, etc., where a structure is described in terms of deformation, stresses, natural frequencies, and buckling nodes, and so on. And the third uh, third differentiator I would like to call is that. Material characteristics are usually independent of the size and load of the material. For example, if aluminum has modulus, 73 gigapascal, it will remain this value no matter whether it's used to make an aircraft wing or a car body, or whether it's subject to a force of 100 newton or 10,000 newton, or with the characteristic of a structure, they are directly affected by uh, by the size and also the load it is subjected to. So that is uh, what I would like to tell the difference between material and structure and define the material and structure.
0: Right. So as you just said, so we're now, you know, increasingly, you know, using materials that we are kind of, you know, architecting from the ground up. So, you know, a carbon fiber reinforced composite um that has fiber bundles on like the micro scale which is embedded in a plastic and that is then kind of you know an individual layer of composite on the kind of intermediate scale and then we kind of put one layer on top of each other in a in a laminate which then ultimately comprises the structure that we would I don't know build a wing or a fuselage out of um so with this kind of architecting doesn't the differentiating line between a material and a structure kind of blend together somewhat?
1: Yes, it's, uh, it's really the differentiation from the modeling perspective. If basically you have, a, uh, for example, what you want is the material properties. Say basically, you have a block of matter. You want to calculate the Young's modulus. You treat it as a material, not as a structure. If you want the torsional stiffness, then you treat it as a structure, structure, not a material. I hope you get that point and also a material and uh, it's basically supposed to a material you serve a purpose to make a bigger structure, not uh, used by itself. And uh, a typical example is that I recently see a paper on science, they find a new material, it's a metamaterial and they say it's, uh, you know, it will be twist, twisted when it's under compression. So they claim this is a new material behavior, and they what they also commonly is that when you know they use the one unit cell to do the analysis, you get that uh, because of the unique uh, microstructures I have. When you have more and more unit cells put together to form a bigger material or bigger structure, you find out that behavior disappears. So. The point I want to make is that basically, whatever the compression gutter trace is not a material behavior; it's a structure level
0: behavior. Right. I think uh, you know just to explain this this concept of a of a metamaterial. I mean, metamaterials basically is a concept that is quite a hot topic right now in in engineering and also in physics and in engineering mechanics specifically. It's typically, yeah, one cell of a specific we would call it a structure like an arch for example that is then repeated again and again and again and as you can as you just pointed out we call it a metamaterial because we can get we can get properties out of this seemingly human made material that you can't have with any other naturally occurring bulk material but as you just rightly pointed out when you have something that you compress that then causes a twisting motion that is really a structural effect. So maybe we shouldn't be calling it a metamaterial to begin with, but rather a structure. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes, I think to test whether that that indeed a material property, you just increase the size of material or add more unit cells. If the same material still remains, that's the material property.
0: Right. Okay. So then you also said that you know the typical structural elements that we t- we tend to deal with when we're at university and also in industry um, are one-dimensional beams, for example, two-dimensional plates, and let's say three-dimensional objects like bricks. Um, could you describe how these kind of representative bodies, the beam, the plate, and the brick, are used to model aircraft components?
1: Oh uh, Yeah, it depends on the analysis stage and design stage you're at in the Engineering of the aircraft in the early stages, detailed build up inform, information of the aircraft that usually is not available. Then you do very coarse approximations. For example, you were, the fuselage might be just modeled as a shell, and the aircraft wing will be modeled as a beam, and the tail stabilizers might be modeled in space. Then as the design progresses, more and more structure information available, details are available. And also this structure model becomes more and more complex. For example, may now for the wind, we have more details about the wind, we might need to model the wind skins as shells and the internal wind structures, such as spars as beams and ribs as plates. So fundamentally speaking, if you have a structure component, if the cross section much smaller than the longitudinal direction, it can be modeled as a beam. If a component has a thickness much smaller than the implant dimensions, it can be modeled as a plate, if it's flat, and uh, as the shell, if it's curved. If all three dimensions, they are of similar size, then you should model it as a 3D bricks, no matter how detailed or how cool the structure model is, it will be a combination of the beam and place and shells 3D solids, so just basic Uh, mathematical constructs we learned in our uh, engineering studies in our classes to model an aircraft.
0: Right. So it's almost, in a way, it almost replicates what we, you know, when, when we have a composite material, let's say we have the entire laminate, which is one length scale. And then we have another length scale at the individual layer. And then another length scale at the interface between, let's say, the fiber and the plastic. And as you just rightly pointed out, is that as you go down these scales, let's say in an aircraft, it's in, in the same way you could have the entire wing. Then you could zoom further in and you can have the internal structure of a wing, like ribs and, and spars and stringers. And then you could zoom in even further and have kind of an individual block of material. So we have these individual length scales. And so how, how do we aggregate up from, from the lower level up to the to the larger level. How do we account for all the effects? Because it's not like when we model an aircraft, we model each individual atom, but we still need to be able to model let's say damage at a material level, which could then propagate further up to a rib debonding from the skin of the wing skin, for example. So how, how is this done that we kind of aggregate up uh, the information?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question, and that's uh, it's mainly what the uh, research field called model scale modeling or micromechanics is uh, is uh, try to taking care of. And uh, the first, the as you said, that it's impossible for us to analyze the aircraft wind and uh, in terms of items or some features, even like uh, carbon fibers, because for carbon fibers, we know they typically have a diameter of a few microns. Then your aircraft structure, their size of meters. If you want to, in your finite element model, also capture the, this micro scale details, you find out you deal with a huge finite element model. Let me use the example. So if you want to analyze this small, very small square plate with 10 centimeters wide and one centimeter thick, So, for you to capture the features at the scale of microns, use finite elements when you analyze this plate. We need to divide the width with at least 100,000 divisions so that each division is about one micron. Otherwise, you cannot, you lose the capability to capture the micron level features. And also, the thickness is about 10,000 divisions. Then, the total number of elements, you have 100,000 times 100,000 times 10,000 you have basically 10 to the 14th power, which is 100 trillion elements. It's a huge finite element model no computers can handle right now. So what uh, we typically do is that uh, use a model scale approach. If you want to do it computationally to basically involve scale separation, to do it, for example, for fiber reinforced composites, what we do, we, we take a representative volume element Basically, just by looking at the uh, you know, a picture or a CT scan of your pre-preg layers, okay, to see how the fibers are arranged, then you have a representative volume element to contain, contain fiber and matrix. Then you do a micromechanics analysis to get the effective properties. That's so-called laminar constants we are familiar Then we use this laminar constants in our lamination theory to construct the the shear model at the microscopic level to do the structure analysis. So that is how it's taking care of as a, as a structure level. You, you do have to have other models on smaller uh, block of the material, which is called a representative volume element to calculate the effective property as input for your structure analysis.
0: Right. So we basically have to run multiple models at each of the different length scales, and then kind of the information goes up from the microscale up into the microscale. But then alternatively, what you are known for and what your research is based on is you've proposed something called the structural genome. Can you explain what you mean by the structural genome?
1: Yeah, uh, I'm glad that you asked this. And, uh, you know, first I need to say why I into this concept of structure genome because there are at least two difficulties associated with this uh, representative volume element concept I just mentioned. First, it requires the analyst to invoke the scale separation assumption, and sometimes it is done in an arbitrary fashion. Second, it usually computes properties for 3D solids, not for place, shells, or beans. They compute properties as Young's modulus, Poisson's ratio, this type of properties. While well, many aerospace structures, they are modeled using beams and plates and shells. So what I did is to generate the RVE concept to be structured, you know, so that it computes effective properties not only for 3D solids but also for place and shells, beams. For example, I can compute the torsional stiffness for a beam or shear center for a beam in terms of fiber level of architectures. So that will be the structure genome concept. And it's defined as smallest mathematical building block of the structure. And I need to emphasize the word mathematical because RVE is a physical building block of the structure. Usually uh, people define that way. But the structure genome is not just the smallest building block of, of the structure, but it's the smallest mathematical building block of the structure. For example, for a composite laminate the structure genome will be the transverse normal line, if you can imagine with me, because we can mathematically sweep that transverse normal line in that plane to form the 3D solid, which is laminate. And for another example, for a beam, the structure genome will be the cross section because we can extrude that cross section along the beam reference line to form the solid structure. And so that's the concept of the structure genome.
0: Right. So basically, it helps you to, as you said, in the the representative volume element, we kind of try to look at our structure, develop a mental picture of it, and then draw a volume around a specific length scale, a specific picture that we think is representative of a specific length scale. But you're basically making that more rigorous and objective by defining the mathematically, what the representative or the, the, the smallest length scale basically is. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's uh, one way to say that. And, uh, uh, and But the, another one is that when you do RVE, usually you only directly just compute the 3D properties. And you have difficulty to compute, for example, shear center of uh, build-up wind if you want the shear center for want to model a wind with ribs and uh, spars and uh, as a beam, then our concepts concept have difficulty to do that
0: okay so then could you provide an example of um how the structural genome then informs the structural analysis so for example um how does this uh this multi-scale analysis change the way that industry is, let's say, designing an aircraft wing or an aircraft fuselage? How is this different?
1: Oh, yeah. And uh, let me uh, use first one right example that uh, when you have a sandwich structure, say you, your face are uh, laminates, then you have a honeycomb core there. Traditionally, people, when they do this model scale analysis, what they do is they take the honeycomb core find the unicell of the honeycomb core, do a uh, you know, homogenization analysis or RVE analysis of that to get the 3D properties of the core, then the original sandwich structure replaced with basically face and a homogeneous layer representing the core, then the bottom face seed kind of like a laminate to do the analysis. And if you use structured genome, you know, we are not doing that way because we find out that the length scale of the honeycomb is similar as thickness, so the you really the scale separation does not work there. You cannot homogenize the honeycomb uh, to a homogeneous material, then do a plate analysis. You should do a do it together plate model, and also the homogenization of the honeycomb should be happening at the same time. What we do, we take the three D block of the material, cut through the thickness, and also with the honeycomb unit cell there directly compute the bending stiffness, extension stiffness, and uh, extending, uh, extension bending coupling if they are not symmetric. So that, that way you still have the plate element for your structural level analysis. Then the structured genome uh, modeling, what we do is to provide the input, which kind of like a classical elimination theory. I know you are familiar with the APD matrix, but we make this kind of assumptions to get the APD matrix even for a very complicated structure if you want to model as a plate. And uh, for another example is that uh, if you have a very slender structure, you could have basically uh, like a wing also have stiffness. What you want is torsional stiffness and bending stiffness to do your area elasticity simulation, for example. Then you can take a block of material that becomes my structure genome and as long as you think that is representative enough of your win, then the mechanics of structure, you know, the analysis over structure, you know, will help us to extract the portion of stiffness, bending stiffness, which are two major terms you used for your area elasticity uh, simulation.
0: Right. Let me just delve a little bit deeper into that. So basically, currently, when I think of kind of, uh, let's say a wing analysis, we would model it as a let's say a collection of two two dimensional flat or curved plates you know that are stuck together in a finite element model to as you as you just said get out some information about how the entire wing works the bending stiffness the torsional stiffness so what are you basically saying that you can model the whole wing not as a collection of say two a collection of 2d curved or flat plates, but you could basically model it as a as a beam, a one-dimensional long structure where the genome that feeds into that one-dimensional beam become your stringers, your stiffeners, your ribs, the wing skin. So basically the internal components of the wing that then kind of inform how the the structure behaves at the global scale. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. That's the beauty of structure genome. So that's basically what the it- uh, you know I call the structure general as a top down model scale modeling approach because basically it's based on the need you as an analyst you want to model your wind because you know it's too complicated, you want to do that as a simple beam analysis, then you have you know the beam elements for each being element you corresponds to a reality which is a block of material in the original wind or whatever that is your structure general. it will extract all the information needed for you. Uh, kind of like a beam stiffness matrix if you're talking about a single model you're talking about the uh, possibility of six by six stiffness matrix not only the ea GJ ei and uh, and the transverse shears difference you could also have the couplings because it's a complex, complicated structure so the, but this you have to be careful not everything can be modeled as beans otherwise everything becomes so simple this this only works that if the, the wind has high aspect ratios, and uh, and also your behavior, the behavior you're interested in captured by tension, portion, ending this kind of global behavior and the transfer shear, which is the a beam model is capable of representing. Otherwise, we have to use a more advanced model. If you have some deformation modes that you are more interested and beyond the beam model can capture, then you should uh, have a more kinematically more rich model to to represent
0: that right so we just talked about going up the length scale so basically go, having a multi scale model where the uh, internal aspects the genomes inform the global model does it also then work the other way around that say i know what the deformation is of a wing of the entire wing across let's say the length of the wing and I then want to predict the damage at the microscale or at the kind of inter interface between a stringer and the wing skin. Would that be possible as well? So does the information also flow the other way around?
1: Yes, yes, the structure you genome know, basically so one way is is a two-way information between the original the more fundamental model and the model the simpler model you want. And this actually, the process you just described is called the de-homogenization or localization of the structure genome. Let me illustrate this use of the familiar beam theory. I believe your audience are more familiar with that. We uh, first compute the beam stiffness turn, uh, beam stiffness like uh, extension, bending and torsion from the cross section. Then we perform the beam analysis to get our bending moment diagram, shear force diagram, right? But we don't stop there. Then we try to use that to calculate the bending stress distribution over the cross section to apply our failure criteria. Uh, Rena, do you still remember the famous formula we used to compute the bending stress?
0: Right. Yes. What engineer's bending theory?
1: Yeah, it's the sigma equal to M and Y over I. So we have you know stress. Then M is the bending moment. Y is the distance from the point to the neutral axis, and I is the the bending moment of inertia. So in structured genome, this is uh, done in a similar way. Once we know the global deformation, we can simply multiply the global strains which you obtain from the microscopic analysis with the concentration matrix obtained during the homogenization step to obtain the stress and strains inside the microstructure, your structured genome, and such information will be needed to predict the material damage, like uh, fiber and matrix, whatever that happened there: fiber breakage, matrix cracking, or fiber matrix deformation. Those kind of stuff.
0: Right. Very interesting. So, I mean, multi-scale analysis of the structural genome. It it sounds you know very very promising. So, how how do you see this this field or this type of analysis developing in the future? And uh, how are you already, or how do you think you will change the, the workflows in industry? How will people model wings and aircraft structures di- differently when, once they have, you know, the structural g- access to the structural genome?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very, uh, very good question. And uh, we are currently working with the one major aircraft, the uh, airframe manufacturer, and uh, they Have their old workflow. What they do is that they, you know, currently, uh, I think you mentioned about the unidirectional fiber reinforced composites, but the trend is that uh, a lot of airframe components now they try to use the woven composites. And uh, currently, what they do is they, I mean, for unidirectional fiber reinforced composites, we have pretty accurate formulas to compute the so called laminar constants and all that. But for woven composites, that's become a different story. What they currently do is they take a RVE, do the analysis, get the Young's modulus, then input, say last trend or after. Although in their aircraft analysis, they still use spin elements and shear elements. Then they treat it as a homogeneous spin. Like uh, you know, when you compute the elastic constant, I mean the mod- Young's modulus, then they say, oh, this spin is as a cross-section say A, then E times A becomes their extension stiffness. And they, if they compute the shear modulus, then also they just take the pure geometry, compute the polar moment of inertia, G so becomes their portion stiffness. That is not accurate. Uh, if you do like what the structured genome can enable you to do, basically we have all this uh, heterogeneity inside block of material and directly compute the U, EA, and GTA these constituent models or this stiffness matrix, if you're only talking about the elastic behavior for the beam element. And uh, uh, some of the codes can directly take this stiffness, like Abacus and ANSYS, but Nastran can take part of the information right now, not the complete, because for a complicated structure, you're not only dealing with diagonal turns, you're dealing with uh, all the elastic couplings, uh, which are possible in the structure. Right, so, so that, p- that is changing. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. P- perfect. So basically, it has uh, quite a big potential for basically speeding up uh, analysis because rather than you know, as we said before, having to run three different models as you get more and more information. It's possible to perhaps run everything in one model, or, or or even feed information from the structural genome into other analysis codes like like Abacus uh, or Ansys, Nastran, which are other software packages. So, um, how do you? What is kind of like on your list of things to develop in the future? How would you like to? Uh, develop the the structural genome is it just a matter of basically getting industry to adopt this approach more and more or are there further scientific questions that you're trying to answer
1: yeah i think the the most challenging question we try to answer is a progressive failure analysis you know and I, I know you're a researcher uh in composite field that is an open question everybody claimed they did a decent job matched their own experimental data, but uh, but uh, somehow the industry really don't uh, use that much, and uh, I think there are several issues, and uh, and we, we are now basically working on that. And first issue, of course, we really didn't get the streets right. A lot of progressive failure analysis approaches they only stops at the layer level treat the layers as the homogeneous material, but the material really breaks at the fiber and matrix level if you look at it carefully and detailed enough. And that's uh, the second question, so the first part. Second is that when you look at the damage models, the failure criterions and how the damage, how the material should degrade it once they meet the failure criterion, and at which step I consider it as break, is all assumptions. And we try to also, you know, bring some dynamics. Try to put the continuous damage mechanics and uh, fracture mechanics and the cohesive zone models. Uh, all this, uh, you know, people has already attempted and made a uh, a lot of great progresses. We try to put it on a more rigorous, some uh, dynamics foundation. And uh, that's one direction we're working on. The second direction is that we try to take advantage of the uh, wonderful capabilities structure genome has, can accurately and efficiently link the multiple length scales and give the stress at the level you want based on the microscopic uh, uh, information. So those, those are the two fronts we are working on, particularly the damage, damage stuff is uh,
0: yeah i can only concur that yeah the damage of composite materials is still very much an an open problem an open question and yeah the due to the multi-scale nature and a lot of the complexity that you could have damage you know between the fiber and the resin and then you can have layers the laminate that so many different things can interact that it's uh very very difficult to exactly predict how the material fail, and uh, I completely agree with you that unless you model what is going on down to the micro scale, it will be very very difficult to make uh, accurate accurate predictions. Um, well, when bin, it's been absolutely fascinating, um, and I th- I think our listeners will have learned a lot about structural mechanics and some of the challenges that we still have and that we're trying to address with new materials like composite materials um so thank you very much for having the conversation
1: well, thank you arena for having me on your podcast i really appreciate it
0: if you'd like to learn more about the structure genome then head over to aerospaceengineeringblogcom dot com forward slash podcast where you'll find show notes about everything we discussed in today's episode and if you enjoy the aerospace engineering podcast then there are a number of ways you can support it You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're tuning in. You can share it on social media with your friends and family. Or you can support the podcast directly on Patreon, where patrons receive exclusive behind-the-scenes content and special episodes. And with that, thank you very much for listening and talk to you next time.